This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This is the third part of the symposium, The Art of Listening, a symposium to mark the 40th anniversary of Collegium Patristicum Lundense, held on the 5th of October 2019 at CTR, and Jane Svenningson, Professor of Systematic Theology, will give a talk on the art of listening to the past, reflecting on theological history writing. kind invitation. Uh, it's a great honor uh, to, to give this lecture here this, this afternoon. And uh, of course I want to congratulate the Collegium Pastristicum to its 40th anniversary. Uh, as you can see from the uh, uh, screen, I've altered the title slightly uh, in relation to, 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 to that in the program, which is uh, uh, listening uh, to, to history. So it's, it will instead be the art of listening to the past, uh, reflections on theological history, uh, writing. And, um, um, well, as you heard, I'm a systematic theologian, but also a philosopher. I was uh, always trained as, as, as both, and I always uh, felt as both. So I was very happy when I came here to, to Lund and was offered this dual chair with the two um, uh, disciplines. And uh, uh, I will approach this topic as a systematic theologian, but also as a philosopher. And, uh, uh, well, in my profession as a philosopher, I've, one of my main areas for many years has been uh, philosophy of history and memory uh, studies. So uh, now you know a bit of my background. So the art of listening to the past. This summer, a neighbour passed by at our country place and gave us an old photograph of our house. The picture must be about a century old and the veranda looks different, but the old brick house displayed in the photo is unmistakably our beloved country house. In front of the house, the then family has, uh, of the house has lined up. A mother and father, two little children, two maids and perhaps a farmhand, but these are, of course, only conjectures. I was reminded of the photograph again a couple of weeks ago when I started to read Hans Rehn's recent study, Being with the Dead, Burial, Ancestral Politics and the Roots of Historical Consciousness. The book is a beautiful philosophical reflection on the ontological as well as ethical dimension of the fact that we live as humans, not only with the living, but also with the dead. We live in places that bear the traces of those who once lived there. We entertain gardens laid out by people now long gone, knowing that some of the trees and plants will remain in place also when we are no longer there. 
I often reflect on that when I look at a beautiful old ash tree in the midst of our garden, or when every spring I cut our time-worn rose brushes. We also, of course, live with the dead in more distinct ways. We live with the memories of our beloved ones who are no longer with us. We tell stories of who they were, and we keep pictures of their faces. And yet there is a constant temptation to restrict the extent to which we allow the dead to be part of our lives. Already the expression, no longer with us, betrays this temptation in a subtle way. Because the very fact that we speak of our beloved ones as no longer with us reveals that in a significant sense they still are with us. And to be sure, we do want our beloved ones to remain with us. No longer being able to recall the face or the voice of a lost friend or family member can be an extremely painful experience. And yet it seems that we somehow want the dead to be there on our terms. We don't like disturbing memories, just as we don't like our lives to be unsettled by unexpected episodes from the past. However, it is precisely this desire on the part of the living to reduce the dead to what we want them to be or not that Reen wishes to challenge. There is a need, and this is a quote from, from, from this book from which you see the title here, there is a need to resist the temptation of objectifying the lives of the dead as the political, cultural or spiritual property of the living, just as there is a need to move beyond an unreflective or before their shadow-like being and demand. Seen from the perspective of the present, the dead are pitiable, always weaker than the living, whose blood their shadows need in order to be heard. But from the perspective of the dead and the dying, the living are just short, flickering lights waiting to take the, uh, their place among them in the temporality of having been. There are two dimensions of this dense paragraph that neatly summarizes Rien's argument in the book. The first dimension is uh, about the nature of our relationship to the dead. How do we respect the otherness of historical subjects? As Rien indicates, there are two temptations in this regard, either to undermine their alterity, uh, the alterity of the dead by making them too familiar, objectifying them for our purposes, or to undermine their authority by mystifying them, rendering their voices mute. The other dimension is about um, ourselves, about how our own subjectivity is affected by our being with the dead. Living with the dead, among other things, reminds us of the tra transient nature of our lives. While that might be a source of existential distress, it can also be a source for an enhanced sense of life, as the 20th century existentialist philosophers were keen to emphasize. However, as other thinkers in this tradition were equally keen to stress, recognizing our own mortality is not primarily about obtaining a heightened sense of, a good, of life as a good in itself. 
It is also about my ethical relation to future generations of human as well as non-human life. Knowing that we are just transient guest, guests on this earth, in other words, invites us to reflect on how, on, on, on how our agency here and now may affect the yet unborn, those who will one day look back at us as those who are no longer with them. In the remaining parts of this lecture, I will approach the topic of listening to the past against the background of these two dimensions. While Reen has a broader philosophical approach ranging, as his subtitle indicates, from reflection on burial practices to the question of historical consciousness, my own approach would be more narrow, focusing on the writing on history within theology. In particular, I wish to investigate the capacity, and sometimes lacking capacity, to listen to the past within my own discipline, which is that of systematic theology. So this is the first part. Christianity is not one of the great things of history. It is history which is one of the great things of Christianity. Not my own words, uh, uh, um, it's uh, Henri, Henri de Lubac's words, and his famous uh, remark wittingly captures the fact that Christian theology, from the moment of its birth, was intricately, intricately interlaced with history writing. From the author of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, up to Eusebius, early Christian theologians relied significant, significantly on theological readings of history, in order to constitute what eventually became the Christian tradition. The other side of this coin, which Dulebeck is also hinting at, is that early Christian history writing, in its turn, would leave a decisive imprint upon the Western conception of history in general. While the latter aspect is a topic far too vast to be approached in this paper, I want to linger for a moment on theology's significant reliance on history writing. This certainly did not end with the early Christian theologians. On the contrary, theologians in all times have elaborated their arguments by means of historical claims. Friedrich Schleimacher, arguably the greatest of the early modern theologians, even went so far as claiming that it is through the contemplation of history that we come to know the inner essence of religion. And this is what he writes. History, in the most proper sense, is the highest object of religion. Religion begins and ends with history. For in religious, re, religion's eyes, prophecy is also history, and the two are not to be distinguished from each other. And at all times, all true history has, fir, ha, has first had a religious purpose and proceeded from religious ideas. Now, to be sure, all academic disciplines, especially within the humanities, to some extent rely on history. When philosophers, 
introduce new students into their discipline. They usually tell a story that begins with the pre-Socratic thinkers and runs through Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, Descartes, Kant and Hegel, all the way up to contemporary philosophers who, in no small degree, continue to elaborate their own thinking in close dialogue with the canonical figures just mentioned. If instead you choose to study anthropology, you are likely to be introduced to a story about the horrendous acts of the early anthropologists, how they were blinded by the colonial ideals of the time, and how today we know better. History, in this case, not only serves the purpose of defining who we are and where we come from as scholars, but also who we don't want to be and in what direction our discipline should be heading. And while it is true that all academic disciplines to higher or lesser, lesser degree rely on history, I want to maintain that this is particularly the case, uh, or particularly true in the case of theology. Thus, Schleimacher and Dullebach were both right in pointing to the symbiotic relationship between history and Christianity. Like Judaism and Islam, Christianity is founded on the idea of a God who reveals himself in history and who continues to act in history. And the traditional role of the theologian has been to interpret the pattern of these actions. Some theologians have gone very far in this endeavour, such as the 12th century Calabrian abbot Joachim of Fiore, famous for his daring charting of the various phases of God's revelation throughout history. And it's uh, one of Joachim's uh, figura that you uh, can see on the screen. In modern times, beginning with Schleimacher, theologians have taken a more modest approach to their task. Few theologians today would claim to have God's revelation as the object of their study, but would rather define their task as studying what innumerable humans throughout history have experienced and interpreted as God's revelation. But that still leaves theology and theologians intimately tied to history, for their sources of knowledge about these experiences and interpretations are the imprints left by these innumerable subjects throughout history in the form of hymns, prayers, diaries, letters and theological meditations or treatises. I'm now arriving at my point. This intense relation between theology and history means that theologians live with the dead in their own very specific way. Let me here reconnect to Hans Rehn's notion of being with the dead. Just as we as humans live with our near and dear ones who are no longer with us, so we live as scholars with our dead peers. We learn from them. We are inspired by them. Sometimes we disagree with them. And sometimes we are deeply disappointed. As for instance, when some new biographical details emerge that reveal less flattering aspects of our intellectual heroes. So what does it mean to live with our dead thinkers? Or rather, what should it mean? For one thing, it means that there is a moral dimension to history writing. That is, to the way in which we relate to our dead peers. Brown Williams summarises this incisively in his 2005 
essay, Why Study the Past, a work from which I have taken a great deal of inspiration, not only for this lecture, uh, but also for my academic work in general, both as a scholar and a teacher. And this is one of my absolute favourite quotes. The figures the historian deals with are not modern people in fancy dress. They have to be listened to as they are, and not judged or dismissed, or claimed and enrolled as supporters too rapidly. The quotation neatly captures the fact that dealing with people of the past is a matter of striking a sound balance between difference and sameness. On the one hand, we need to recognise the irreducible otherness of historical subjects. They are not just earlier versions of ourselves in fancy dress. On the other hand, we need to assume that human feelings and motivations don't change so fundamentally over history that we cannot imagine, at least in part, what, pe what people experienced, believed or hoped for in earlier ages. The point to bear in mind, as Williams remarks later in the same paragraph, is therefore that the risk of not acknowledging the strangeness of the past is as great as that of treating it as, a purely, as purely and simply a foreign country. These words clearly parallel the already quoted words by Hans Rehn on the temptation of appropriating the dead for our political and cultural purposes versus the temptation of mystifying the dead by cultivating an unreflective awe before their enigmatic being. Now, what about systematic theologians' capacity to listen to the past in relation to these two risks or temptations? As a hypothesis, one might suggest that liberal or progressive theologians or theologies would be more prone to the first temptation, whereas conservative or traditionalist theologies would be more prone to the second. My own suggestion, however, would be that few systematic theologians at all suffer from the temptation of making the past too foreign a country. The general temptation among progressive as well as traditionalist theologians, and I include myself in this critical reflection, is rather to appropriate selected parts of history for their own ideological purposes. I am thereby not insinuating that systematic theologians intentionally abuse or manipulate history. What I am suggesting, however, is that theologians are sometimes a bit too eager to judge and dismiss or to claim and enroll historical key figures for the sake of their own intellectual endeavours. Now, to be generous to my own guild, I think this eagerness has to do with the fact that systematic theology is a discipline that is driven by strong visions and ideals. As a colleague from a neighbouring discipline recently remarked at a conference, systematic theologians always want to sell something, don't they? <laughs> and indeed, they do. From Dietrich Bonhoeffer's theological denunciation of Nazism, via the many factions of liberation theology during the second half of the 20th century, up to contemporary eco-theologians' radical criticism of our consumerist society, 
Systematic theologians usually had greater ambitions than merely describing Christian dogma. They want to sell a message. And here is where the temptation comes in. Because one very effective way of raising the value of a theological product is to anchor it in history. I would be able to give you countless examples of this tendency to enhance a theological vision by relating it to an earlier episode in Christian history. But let me content myself with a few influential examples from the recent decades. One is the role assigned to Scotus among theologians who during the past 20 years have been aligned with the radical orthodoxy movement. When in the early 1990s John Milbank set out to elaborate a comprehensive theological critique of modern secular rationality, he identified Scotus and late medieval nominalism as the point in history where much in theology went wrong. In contrast, his own theological enterprise has been an attempt to recover an Augustinian Thomist vision for a post-secular era, thereby indicating that there was a finer and more pristine era before theology successively became tarnished by secular reason. A second example is the... <coughs> Equally forceful trip of the Constantinian shift as the moment in history when the deformation of true Christianity set in. This trip has been particularly popular among theologians hailing from low church backgrounds, but also more generally among theologians who rightly wish to challenge the politicization of Christianity in the context of modern national churches. For instance, the late Mennonite theologian John Howard Yorder did an excellent work in showing the links between an early free church vision of Christianity and diaspora Judaism before the Constantinization of the church set in. And yet there are questions to be raised about the monumental significance ascribed to the Constantinian shift in some contemporary theologies, not least about the extent to which a particular set of post-Reformation quandaries are being projected back upon late antiquity. As a third example, this time from the liberal wing of contemporary theology, we could mention the tendency by some feminist theologians to buttress contemporary visions of a non-sexist church by anchoring it in a historical claim that the original Christian community was governed by egalitarian ideals. The basis of this historical claim is the significant work that, has, that in recent decades has been carried out by both historians and biblical scholars to explore the status of women in the early church. An obvious name to mention in this context would be Elizabeth Schisle Fiorenza, who in her long scholarly career has combined exegetical skills with a strong feminist theological pathos. However, while the significance of her pioneering research to subsequent feminist theology cannot be overestimated, there is nonetheless a tendency in her systematic theological work to repeat the gesture of depicting a golden age of Christianity which was overthrown by the later patriarchal church of the bishops.
Now, to be clear, I'm not arguing against any of these theological efforts or endeavors. On the contrary, I choose uh, these three examples because they all represent theological perspectives from which I myself have taken a great deal of inspiration. Hence, I do find it of great concern to critically question a certain form of monolithic secular rationality, not least against the background of my own experience as a child of post-war Swedish modernity. Similarly, we need to keep an eye on unhealthy forms of nationalistic politicization of the church, a need that is only becoming more and more pressing, and this is a point to which I um, shall come back in the final part of this lecture. Last but not least, the process of coming to terms with patriarchal structures in both theology and the church is far from uh, completed. That being said, what I do wish to draw attention to through my three examples is what Ron Williams succinctly describes as the temptation to look for a period of Christian history in which the ordinary ambiguities and or corruptions of human history have not obscured the truth of the gospel, be it in the form of a harmonious medieval synthesis, as in Milvang's case, a pre-Constantinian free church, as in Jodr's case, or a primitive egalitarian Christian community, as in Schüssler Fiorenza's case. In other words, we have to be careful not to pick out our historical heroes and golden ages and make them a mirror for our own preferences and agendas, which is, of course, not to suggest that we should refrain from turning to the past for inspiration or that there is no use in seeking analogies between our own time and a particular um, period in history. So finally, how should systematic theologians become better at listening to the past in the sense of respecting the otherness of historical subjects? But apart from the obvious advices of engaging more thoroughly with historical sources and interacting with historians who have compound knowledge of these sources, I think we do well to remind ourselves that to listen to the past is also to be prepared to hear voices that we don't want to hear, voices that for one reason or another we find embarrassing, voices that risk unsettling our own historical identities. And this brings me back to the second part of the paragraph by Hans Rehn, quoted in the introduction to this lecture, which has to do with our own subjectivity and how it is affected by our being with the dead. Green's philosophical meditation <coughs> on this topic is situated within a phenomenological hermeneutical tradition. And those of you who are well versed in this tradition will be able to recognize Heidegger's Mitsein mit dem Toten in the English words being with the dead. <coughs> the expression was first coined by Heidegger in being and time in a section where he deals with how Dasein, human existence, responds to the death of the other. 
This is also the central theme that Rehn elaborates throughout his study, uh, in close dialogue with an array of later thinkers within the same philosophical tradition, notably Emmanuel Levinas and Jacques Derrida. Unfortunately, the limited scope of this lecture does not allow me to do justice to Rehn's compound argument, and I shall have to content myself with briefly touching upon one aspect, the significant shift in focus between Heidegger and Levinas with regard to the death of the other. Although Heidegger dedicates some space in being and time to how the death of the other affects our being, his main interest lies in how Dasein is affected by its own mortality. In this respect, Heidegger's reflections echo the long Western tradition of memento mori, the art of enhancing our finite existence by acquiring a philosophically mature relation to our own mortality. However, as I indicated in the introduction, this notion of authentic finitude as approachable uh, primarily from the perspective of individual mortality has been challenged over the years, especially by Levinas, who, um, contrary to Heidegger, argued that it is the death of the other, our near and dear ones, that truly reveals our finitude. When we lose a friend or a family member, our entire existence is shaken in a way that profoundly affects who we ultimately are. But the experience of loss does not merely throw us into despair. Living with the memory of our lost beloved ones moves us out of ordinary time into the time of the past, and thereby invites us to participate in a shared finitude, which also implies a shared responsibility between the dead, the living, and the yet unborn. Taking my inspiration uh, once more from Green's phenomenological reflection, I wish to apply it to the specific question of history writing in, within theology. Again, now if it is true that living with the dead is constitutive of our very identity in a way that implies a moral responsibility for the dead as well as the not yet born, what does this line of thought entail when transferred to our scholarly identities? More specifically, what does it mean that we, as scholars, are constituted by our past, by thinkers who are no longer with us, but who nevertheless continue to live in us, in our thoughts, in our writing, in our teaching? Recalling a point I made earlier in this lecture, it means, among other things, that uh, it, uh, that we recognize the extent to which history writing serves to construe and uphold our scholarly identities. As Ron Williams again eloquently puts it, we don't have a grid for history. We construct it when we want to resolve certain problems about who we are now. We use narratives to define a subject, a person, a country, a process or practice as something that exists and persists through time. Now the fact that we relate and listen to the past in order to better understand who we are explains our 
uneasiness with episodes or facts that challenge our representation of a particularly past, especially if this is a past that we identify with, for instance, a specific theological or confessional tradition. This is what I referred to a moment ago as the voices that we don't like to hear or don't want to hear. Voices that are difficult to handle precisely because they risk unsettling our own self-understanding. Hence, a common impulse is to recognize that those voices are indeed there, but simultaneously dismiss them as deviations of the true core or essence of the tradition with which we identify. An opposite impulse is to end up in a wholesale rejection of a tradition because of its awkward or problematic aspects. Let me illustrate by a fairly recent example the Reformation Jubilee uh, during 2016 and 2017, which inevitably brought to the fore the ambivalence of the Lutheran legacy including Luther's writings, uh, writings about the Jews and the Peasants' War. Despite many excellent initiatives of dealing with this complex past, several of which took place here in Lund, much of the public debate was polarised between those who saw in Luther the founder of all that is good and bright in the Scandinavian societies and those who found in the reformer nothing but a sinister anti-Semite and betrayer of any truly liberating ideals. In both cases, there was a tendency to foreground and accentuate certain aspects of the past, whereas other aspects were tuned down or ignored. By contrast, I want to argue that the art of listening to the past is very much about owning up to our checkered past, which means to assume this past in all its complexity as part of our own identity. Apply to the example of Lutheranism or Lutheran uh, theology, this means that Luther's hatred of the Jews remains part of the Lutheran tradition to which I belong. Hence, it cannot simply be rejected as an unfortunate uh, deviation of this tradition, nor does it afford me to reject the Lutheran tradition wholesale. Rather, it gives me a special responsibility for this particular past. And this finally brings me back to the moral aspect of history writing in general and theological history writing in particular. While representation of the past is always and inevitably selective to some degree, we currently live in a time when efforts to deliberately adjust or manipulate collective memory in order to promote particular ideological agendas are on the rise. Efforts that are bound to proliferate as technological means for mobilizing selective memory evolve. One example which is of particular concern for theologians is the nationalist claims that are today being made to a purportedly common Christian past on the European continent. While most bluntly articulated by nationalist parties in Eastern Europe, Variations of such claims can be found in most right-wing populist parties across the continent, as well as in a growing number of conservative parties. The problem and danger 
uh, with such memory politics is threefold. First, in relation to the past itself. In placing emphasis on the harmonious aspects of Europe's Christian past, while deliberately directing focus away from its problematic and repressive features, it fails to do justice not only to the complexity of the past, but also to Christianity's many victims in medieval as well as in modern Europe. Second, such memory politics is pernicious because, because it invokes a past that appeals to the imagination and memory of certain segments of the population at the expense of others. This is, of course, a deliberate strategy, the aim of which is to convey a message of who belongs and who does not belong in contemporary Europe. Third and finally, this deliberately selective account of Europe's past is problematic in relation to the future. As I have argued elsewhere, there is a close relation between memory politics and the ways in which we are able to conceive of the future. More precisely, as populist parties or policymakers are well aware, uniform constructions of the past tend to breed exclusionary and potentially repressive visions of our future societies. This new political predicament brings to head the question of responsible theological history writing. As a purportedly harmonious Christian past is being reinvoked as a bulwark against the vision of a culturally and ethnically diversified Europe, Christian theologians, as experts on the biblical inheritance, have a special responsibility to point to the complexity of our collective past. Once more, I want to stress here the interconnectedness between past, present and future, and argue that an open and critical discussion of which voices we choose to favour in our constructions of the past is essential to our ability to conceive of the future in constructive and dynamic ways. While this is of particular and immediate relevance in relation to current tendencies to manipulate, manipulate the past for political purposes, it also goes for history writing in general. Yet another way to spell out the art of listening to the past would therefore be to speak with Levinas of a shared responsibility over generations, words that echo the famous saying commonly traced to Edmund Burke that history is a pact between uh, the dead, the living and the yet unborn. Or, if I should attempt my own metaphor, good history writing is like cultivating an old garden, which means respecting and entertaining the work laid on by generations that have gone before us in a way that gently and carefully prepares it for those who will come after us. Thank you. Thank you.